Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh and we're here to give you a part 6 of Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King today where we're going to be highlighting the key differences between the second part of the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings Return of the King film and we're going to be comparing it to the corresponding sections in the Return of the King novel. Got a lot of honestly this is going to be the last thing that we cover that has like new topics are a part of the storyline before we finish out next week with our rankings episode. So it kind of all comes to a close in a way today. Obviously, we're going to throw in some fun little facts and anecdotes from the appendixes next week and things of that nature. But for the most part, the story comes to an end today in its totality. And, you know, it's taken us a long time to get here, but uh, the train has finally stopped. This is the end of the road for our guys. Uh, you know, Frodo, Sam, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf, or we're going to say goodbye to them today, you know, and it's uh, it's very, very fitting. We did this thing from the right, the right way from the beginning to where we're at today, and we're just ready to send it off. Uh, and I don't know, I'll just turn it back over to Chase here before we get started, and then we'll run through it. It's been a great ride, man. It's wild to already think we've been on this ride since March, you know. Uh, that's a three-month road, and, and I think when you really embrace it and get in detail like we do on the show here what's wild is it actually makes time go faster so it's been a it's been a, a long ride but a quick ride but uh it's it's been awesome uh side note before we get started i saw speaking of our topic here someone had placed the map frodo and sam took to mordor over the united states ironically Sitting in Orlando, Florida, here, Jane Nelly and I, we were sitting in the middle of Mount Doom. <laughs> so um, with that, I'll turn it over to Jane Nelly, and we'll get started today. That's actually really cool. I didn't even know that. Usually, Chase will throw those facts to me ahead of time and, and give me a heads up. But this, I'm learning this for the first time on set, just like you all are. So that's actually really cool. I did not know that here in Orlando, Florida, we're in the center of Mount Doom. But it makes sense because it's super fucking hot down here in Orlando, Florida. So <laughs> for this northern boy coming down from New York, I'll tell you what. The summers down here are brutal. Uh, so now that that makes perfect sense, but that's really cool. But yeah, man, let's you know jump in and kind of get started today. You know, we're gonna tackle this the same way we tackle all our differences episodes. I'll take the first four or five, pass over Chase. We'll do the same thing back and forth until we close it on out, and you know, then that'll be it for any sort of new topics outside of you know the the quick little interesting facts that we'll do from time to time. But yeah, man, let, let's jump right on into it. And keep in mind that you know I've mentioned this a few times. The book and the film don't exactly line up as nicely as they did in Fellowship of the Ring because of the difference of you know switching perspectives. So there's still some times here, especially in the very beginning part, where we're still in the events that occurred in the Two Towers when it comes to Frodo and Sam's perspective to start this off. Uh, you know, but we are in the Return of the King portion when it comes to the other characters' perspectives, being Aragorn, Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli, Merry Pippin. So. Uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and jump right on into it. The first, uh, I would say, big difference that I noticed, and it was more of like a cool to see on screen type of deal, but it was a little bit of difference. It's a, I, I had put down here, that it was cool to see Aragorn stop the Corsairs of Umbar with just himself, Legolas, and Gimli, then reveal the army of the dead as the captains of the ship like laugh at them. But in the book, we don't actually get to see it. We only get a story from Legolas like after the siege of Gondor where he's telling Merry and Pippin like a quick summary of what happened. Remember Gimli didn't even want to talk about it. He like gave it to Legolas like, hey man, you, you tell him through it because like, he was so scared about you know the whole situation and how it really terrified him. He tried to like block it from his memory. And so the only thing really we get in the novel is just a quick recap summary of the events from Legolas where 
on screen it was really cool to see how it looked obviously we already know that we mentioned this last week that Aragorn was supposed to have the Dunedain with him as well as Elrond's sons but in the film it was just like listen Gimli so I thought it was kind of cool if you were on the the Corsairs of Umbar ships passing by and like three people against the, what is it like 10 ships or so just enemies full of an army there and they're just like laughing at three people trying to stop them and then all of a sudden they see like the, the ghost shadows come out and overswarm the ships I thought that was cool to uh, see on screen but that was obviously a big difference between what we saw in the film versus the novel second thing here because it shifts to Frodo's perspective Frodo never enters Shelob's lair without Sam in the book. Like They go in together. They never have that fight where Frodo sends him home and all that. We talked a little bit about that last week. But Frodo sent Sam away in the movie, so he enters the lair with just Smeagol. And even so, he didn't even want to do it. And I'll, I'll give this part to Chase because I know he really likes it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's another difference that I wanted to notate there is, you know, this whole idea of... Frodo sending Sam away and them having this huge fight is just dramatization for the movie because in the book they stuck side by side the whole way they had like their little tiny things like disagreements but that would mainly be when Sam mentioned the ring in a way or like was trying to you know offer his assistance when it came to the ring specifically but it was never they never really were terribly at odds over the you know induction of Smeagol or how they were going about stuff Sam would give his opinions and stuff, and Frodo would just, you know, either ignore it or, or take the advice, but it was never, like, any sort of real animosity, and in the film, they really dramatized it to the point where, you know, obviously Frodo sent him away, but he never goes into Shelob's lair alone, so I thought that was really interesting, and before I go further with my differences, I'll turn this part over to Chase, because I know he really loves his Smeagol parts, and yeah, I'll let him take it away from here. Here you go, guys. Here's your, uh, uh, here's your impressions y'all have been looking forward <laughs> for today. Uh, and keep in mind, like Jay Nelly said, this is not in the book, but uh, my, one of my favorite parts. Master must go inside the tunnel. Go in is the only way. Go in or go back. What's that smell? Orcsies come in here sometimes. Over here. What is it? What is this? You will see. Oh, yes. You will see. And then, of course, it cuts to Sam for a minute, and he finds the Lamus bread. Naughty little fly, why does it cry? And this is when Frodo is going through the tunnel, and Shelob is coming after Frodo, and he's caught in that web, and he's dropped and sting on his side. And Gollum, like, jumps by him and goes, Caught in a web soon to be eaten <laughs> and then Frodo escapes for a minute and he goes got away did it precious not this time not this time <laughs> and then Frodo and Gollum Frodo strikes Gollum and this is a very dramatized moment which really shows like Frodo's fed up with Gollum and then Smeagol kind of breaks out of his persona here and goes Smeagol wouldn't hurt master it wouldn't. It wasn't us. It wasn't us. You must believe us. It was the precious. The precious made us do it. And then Frodo gets off of Smeagol and Frodo says, I have to destroy it, Smeagol. I have to destroy it for both of our sakes. And then Gollum turns 
just like me, myself, and Irene. No! <laughs> jumps on Frodo, but then tumbles off a cliff in the process, which never happens in the book. I just thought it was great. Favorite part is when it says, Naughty little fly, why does it cry? <laughs> so good, man. Fantastic. With that, I'll turn it back over to Jay Nelly. Awesome. Uh, to you know, segue off of that, because I actually, I, mean, I mentioned, this is the part with Frodo and Sam's perspective that's still in the Two Towers novel. I wanted to detail exactly where it was found and, and the differences in between it. So in the book, in the Two Towers, it's on page 378. Just to really highlight the fact that Sam was there the whole time, Sam and Smeagol have a little battle of their own. And I'm going to read this part here, just because it does go ahead and talk a little bit about how uh, Smeagol wasn't going to hurt Frodo. So the fact that they added Smeagol and Frodo battling a little bit there just doesn't really make sense. Uh, it was like, To me, it was an unnecessary addition. I don't think it really did anything for the film <laughs> at all. But here we go. This is like the, I would say, halfway through the page on page 378 for me. It says, As soon as she had squeezed her soft, squelching body and its folded limbs out of the upper exit from her lair, she moved with a horrible speed now running on her creaking legs, making a sudden bound. She was between Sam and his master. Either she did not see Sam, or she avoided him for the moment as the bearer of the light, and fixed all her intent upon one prey, upon Frodo, bereft of his file, running heedlessly up the path, unaware yet of his peril. Swiftly he ran, but Sheila was faster, and a few leaves she would have him. And Sam gasped and gathered all his remaining breath to shout, Look out behind, he yelled, Look out, master, I'm... But suddenly his cry was stifled. A long, clammy hand went over his mouth, and another caught him by the neck while something wrapped itself about his leg. Taken off guard, he toppled backwards into the arms of his attacker. Got him, hissed Gollum in his ear. At last, my precious, we've got him. Yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one. She'll get the other. Oh, yes, Sheila will get him. Not Smeagol. He promised he won't hurt Master at all. But he's got you, you nasty, filthy little sneak. He spat on Sam's neck. (laughs) Fury at the treachery and desperation at the delay when his master was in deadly peril gave to Sam a sudden violence and strength far beyond anything that Gollum had expected from the slow, stupid hobbit as he thought him. Not Gollum himself could have twisted more quickly or fiercely. His hold on Sam's mouth slipped, and Sam ducked and lunged forward again, trying to tear away from the grip on his neck. His sword was still in his hand, and on his left arm, hanging by its throng, was Faramir's staff. Desperately, he tried to turn and stab his enemy, but Gollum was too quick. His long right arm shot out, and he grabbed Sam's wrist, his fingers like a vice. Slowly and relentlessly, he bent his hands forward and down until a cry of pain. Sam released the sword, and it fell to the ground, all the while Gollum's other hand still tightening on Sam's throat. And then Sam played his last trick. With all his strength, he pulled away, got to his feet, firmly planted, and then drove his legs against the ground with the whole force hurled himself backwards. Not expecting even this simple trick from Sam, Gollum fell over with Sam on top, as he received the weight of the sturdy hobbit on his stomach. A sharp hiss came out of him, and for the second, his hand upon Sam's throat loosened, but his fingers were still gripped the sword hand. And Sam tore himself forward and away, stood up, and then he quickly wheeled away to his right, pivoted on the wrist held by Gollum, laying a hold of the staff with his left hand. Sam swung it up, and down it came with a whistling crack on Gollum's outstretched arm just below the elbow. And with a squeal, Gollum let go. Then Sam waded in, not waiting to change the staff from left to right, he dealt another savage blow, but quick as a snake, Gollum slithered aside, and the stroke aimed at his head fell across his back. The staff cracked and broke, and that was enough for him. 
Grabbing from behind was an old game of his, and seldom he had failed in it, but this time, misled by spite, he had made the mistake of speaking and gloating before he had both hands on his victim's neck. Everything had gone wrong with his beautiful plan since that horrible light had so unexpectedly appeared in the darkness, and now he was face to face with a furious enemy, little less than his own size. This fight was not for him. Sam swept up his sword from the ground and raised it. Gollum squealed, springing aside on all fours. He jumped away in one big bound like a frog before Sam could reach him. He was off, running with amazing speed back towards the tunnel. And sword in hand, Sam went after him. For a moment, he had forgotten everything else, but in the red fury in his brain and the desire to kill Gollum. Before he could overtake him, Gollum was gone. Then as the dark hole stood before him and the stench came out to meet him, like a clap of thunder, the thought of Frodo and the monster smote upon Sam's mind. He spun around and rushed wildly up the path, calling and calling his master's name. He was too late. So far, Gollum's plot had succeeded. So the reason I went through all of that is none of that was shown in the film at all. Huge difference there. Sam and Frodo, I'm sorry, Sam and Gollum had a fight. Gollum and Frodo never did, and he said because he promised that he wouldn't hurt Master, that's why he left Frodo to Shelob. So this whole idea that the film made Gollum and Frodo have this little struggle was just kind of asinine, and I, I don't know, it just didn't make sense to me. And it does, not that it messes with the plot, but it's a direct contradiction at the very least, right? And I also thought that this was kind of silly when you were talking about the type of fight that Frodo and Gollum had. I even said the the end of the battle was a Lion King style, like Simba versus Scar. Like, <laughs> the, like was, Gollum yeah. jumped on him and he kicked him off and he threw him over to the side of the cliff's edge. It's just this, <laughs> it was really, really silly, man. I don't know. So I thought that was interesting. And then from that point, we get this weird vision of Galadriel helping him up. Like this, like Frodo goes in this dreamlike state and Galadriel like offers her hand out to him to help him up. And says like, if you do not find a way, no one will. Like, what the fuck was that about, <laughs> man? Like, I don't know either, dude. It was weird, but uh, yeah. So, anyways, so I, I thought that was you know interesting. The other difference I'll have before I turn it over to Chase is you know in in the book the way Frodo got stabbed by the stinger while running for the exit in the movie was because Frodo was alone, but yeah, she sneaks up behind him and stabs him through the belly with her stinger, like you know. So the way it happened in my mind in the book is he was not expecting her because Sam shouted a little bit too late and she caught him through the back through the belly where in the film she like uh, crawls around him and he's like looking for her like, oh my gosh, what happened? I can't see it. And then he looks in front of him and then it hits him in the stomach. And I don't think that's exactly how it happened uh, in the novel. So I thought that was a difference there. And, you know, with that, I'll turn it back over to Chase. Yeah, I got to agree with you 100%. Like, honestly, I think it... I was a. I think it was funny, like what he said in the film, <laughs> call him to Frodo. But I gotta agree with you 100. It was a direct contradiction, and I think in a way, it would have been better if he had a moment like that more with Sam. Like not necessarily like Sam gets caught in a web and stuff, but you know he had almost like that fight in the book with him. I feel like they could have added their little renditions there to make it funny but they could have done that in the book and it would have actually been a little better so i agree with you on that absolutely um another thing i put down i thought it was cool watching the grand <laughs> break the barrier of the door i thought it was badass man i, I kind of liked it um of course it was cool watching sam fight shelob i thought the way they did that in the film i i really liked how they did that besides the whole golem thing um, and this was a cool one, I thought. So the Witch King, 
when he confronts Gandalf in the extended edition. I thought it was badass, man. It's like sword lights on fire and uh, Gandalf's staff breaks and he goes, you have failed, old man. The world of men will fall. It almost reminded me of, um, I wonder if that was like, I don't think it was like the Star Wars. I don't know where it's from, but he was like, uh, no, what was that from where he's like, oh, that was Harry Potter. Remember, I think it was it was Voldemort in the Order of the Phoenix films specifically where he's like, you've lost, old man, which was like the worst film out of all of them. But I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of cool. I, I, I thought it was interesting. And then uh, last one, I'll turn it over to you. I, I don't know what the fuck this was. Um, Denethor, as Gandalf breaks in, like sees... Gandalf and notices he's burning alive because he's the one that put the oil on him in Baramir. And he goes, ah! And like runs off the Ministeria Tower and falls off the top of the tower to the bottom. I don't really know what the fuck that was, but with that, I'll turn it back over to you, man. And there was a lot of things coming here in that I, I thought was kind of interesting in you know, not the greatest way when it comes to the differences between the two. You know, uh, this is a minor one, the one I'm about to say now, but Mary has this heart-to-heart with Eowyn in the film about just wanting to help his friends and see them again, <laughs> and that just never happens. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was weird. Uh, I did think it was a cool addition from the movie when Denethor was on his way to burn himself in Faramir. Pippin heads to where they are, and we see a flower on, like in bloom on the Tree of Gondor. Like, that never happens in the book because the tree never blooms again. Like, it's, and I wrote, and I took down the note when we get to this later at the very end uh, about the difference there with, like, the tree thing, and that's in the book. I, I detailed exactly where as well. So, uh, we'll get to there when we get to it. But I thought just that that, that was the, the clicking in Pippin's head because there was no bloom, there was never a bloom on that tree. And I remember, like, in the part one of the film, Gandalf was talking about how they were waiting for the tree to bloom and then it hasn't in however many years or whatever. So yeah, when we saw that one little bloom there, I thought that was cool because that's Pippin's like, oh shoot, we need to save Faramir now. Like, that, like things are starting to come together. And, you know, so that was interesting as far as the film goes. But uh, I, I also agree, like, you know, the whole Grand part where they're breaking through the gate, that was cool to see on screen. And, you know, the troll busts in after Grand broke the gate and just going on a tear. And then Gandalf comes in, sluts one of their throats with his his sword that was sick i also agree with you in terms of the fact that the battle with sam and she was fun but what i really didn't like about that whole sequence is after they had the battle and, and she retreated the movie really missed out on the heavy deliberation and painful decision and how tormented sam was to choose between staying with frodo or carrying out the mission and destroying the ring on his own like it described in the book in the movie the orcs come and sam runs for cover and like the the lead orc, I guess I would call him, says that Frodo's not dead, and Sam watches them take him to the tower. That's not how it went at all in the book. In the book, uh, he saw the orcs coming, and he put the ring on, number one. <laughs> like, that, that's the first thing that happened, so they couldn't see him. And when they were going through it, like, like he, that was a whole ordeal. He had this big like, you know, internal struggle about, what the hell do I do now? You know, do, I, you know, do I stop everything, and now that my master's dead, do we just, like, do we just call it a quit to call it a day, or... You know, do I take the ring and do I finish this journey alone? Was this how it was meant to be? You know, he had the, this whole internal, like, I would call it an existential crisis in, in, internally. And the movie just missed it. 
it was a full miss. It was just, in the movie, it was as if it wasn't important. He's like, oh, shoot, let me go hide from the orcs real quick. Oh, Frodo's alive. They're taking this body. All right, well, now I'm going into the tower. Like, Frodo, or I'm sorry, Sam was about to leave Frodo's ass. Like, he was really about to leave Frodo's ass until the, the orcs came down and they he overheard them say, like, you know, this one's still alive or whatever they said in the books. But point being is that like, it was it got very, very close to Sam just leaving Frodo for, you know, for dead. So... Because he remember he thought Frodo was dead, so I just I thought the movie really missed out on that. Uh, next thing I got is, and this is something you said was cool. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought like, it was great. The, man. Talking about the <laughs> Witch King breaking Gandalf's staff. What the fuck was that? That just <laughs> never <laughs> happens. Like, are you telling me like Gandalf was supposed to have powers comparable to Sauron? Not you know maybe not at the exact same level, but at least comparable, right? And, and then all of a sudden, like, Sauron's, like, first lieutenant, the Witch King, can break Gandalf's staff like Gandalf broke Saruman's? Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I thought that was really, really silly. So, uh, I'm gonna read the chorus, like, where this lines up for the scene in the book, because it really frustrated me. And, you know, at least on this perspective, we're in the Return of the King book. So, so if you guys, you know, think, see as I'm reading back and forth, like when I go to Frodo and Sam's perspective right now, I have the Two Towers book on one side of my chair, and I've got the Rolling Ring, Return of the King on the right side of my, my chair, just flipping back and forth between the two with the perspectives. So, uh, on page 100 in the Return of the King novel, it, it, it details exactly what happened when he came face to face with Witch King, and not one part does it say that his staff was broken. So let's go ahead <laughs> and hear it. It says, This is uh, the Witch King and Gandalf, right? Gandalf starts, You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge saddle halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back. Fall into nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. And the black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown. And yet, upon no head visible was it set. The red fire shone between it and the mantled shoulders vast and dark. From a mouth unseen there came a deadly laughter. Old fool, he said, old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that he held, he lifted his high his sword and flames ran down the blade. Gandalf did not move, and in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed, shrill and clear he crowed, Wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer, there came far away another note. Horns, 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 and dark Minuan sides they dimly echoed. Great horns of the north, wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. Nothing about a broken staff. So, anyways, I'll go <laughs> ahead and turn it back over to Chase. Yeah, What's interesting, too, what's funny is, like, the Balrog couldn't even break Gandalf's staff, but the Witch King apparently can, so I don't know. But uh, with that being said, I thought the battle with the elephants was badass, so Aomer kind of got to show his skill a little bit here. He took out the, like, lead guy on the elephant with a spear, uh, which killed two other elephants by collapsing over. And then Eowyn was able to cut a few down with her feet, which is really cool because in the book, you just kind of hear about the Oliphants <laughs> versus we actually got to see that on screen. So I thought that was really cool. Um, Eowyn, she kicks ass. I wrote down she slayed seven orcs. And then the eighth one was that deformed orc that she punches in the face and then cuts his leg and knocks him down to the ground. Then, uh, I thought this was kind of cool, is so, this kind of, this 
interesting difference, interesting ad here. Kind of adds to the debate conversation that we had a couple weeks ago. So Mary has this conversation with Gandalf as the trolls are trying to break down the doors to Minas Tirith to break further in through the city. And Mary says, or sorry, Pippin says, Peregrine Tuke, always messing up their names. Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of the world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And Pippin says, what? Gandalf, see what? Gandalf says, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. Gandalf says, no. No, it isn't. So it makes me wonder, maybe based on the perspective the film took, maybe Frodo did die. What do you think? I'm glad you mentioned that. And I want to get to that. There's just a few differences that I want to touch before I also dive into that part right there because I agree with you. It really kind of we, we talked about this, you know, when we finished the novel part of the series of what that could have meant, and you know, we'll talk about that in just a second. There's just some things I wanted to to bring up as well before I want to catch up there because there's a few things I have sure. before we get there. Um, the movie does not include the part where the wild men and their leader Gonburi Gon led Rohan through the paths of their woods to avoid riding head on into another part of Mordor's army that was made, waiting on the main road. So that you know, in the book. The wild men there, they usually have a bad relationship with the with Rohan because they feel like they kind of took part of their land or whatever it ended up being. But they hate the orcs even more. And so they put aside their differences and said, hey, you know, we'll take you through these paths through the woods to to circumvent the army. There's there's a whole part of the army waiting for you to, to join the fray on the, on the road. And they said that they might be like, even maybe they have a little bit more. So Rohan might have a hard time getting past that one section. They might not be able to come to their aid. And so you have to kind of put that in the movie, you know, just from a battle scene perspective. Just because, you know, that changes everything. If they go straight on to the main road like they did in the film, they're supposed to have met a huge army before they would have gotten to the Pelennor Fields. You know, that's why, like, this Gonburi Gon guy was able to lead them and in, in his uh, wild men. And, you know, there's even a part at the end where Aragorn gives them the forest, like, to their own. You know, like just because like the, the part they played in it. So you got to put that in if you're the film. But that's another difference. Uh, and I know you had mentioned this already, but I also wanted to kind of talk about the corresponding parts in the book when it comes to Dinothor when he was running out of the pyre, engulfed in flames, sprinting off the edge of the cliff in the movie. Well, it doesn't happen at all in the books, like Chase mentioned. He jumps on the pyre, holding <laughs> the palantir that he had been using in secret. And that's like on uh, in the Return of the King. That's page one thirty through one thirty one in my book for reference. So I'm just gonna go ahead and read it to show exactly how this went down for him. It goes. This is talking between Gandalf and Denethor. Come, said Gandalf. We are needed. There is much you can yet do. Then suddenly Denethor laughed. He stood up tall, proud again, and stepped swiftly back to the table. He lifted it from the pillow on which his head had lain. Then coming to the doorway, he drew aside the covering, and lo! He had between his hands a palantir, and as he held it up, it seemed to those that looked on that globe, it began to glow with an inner flame, so the lean face of the Lord was lit as with a red fire, and it seemed cut out of hard stone, sharp, with black shadows, noble, proud, and terrible. His eyes glittered. Pride and despair, he cried. 
Did thou think that the eyes of the white tower were blind? Nay, I have seen more than thou knowest, gray fool, for thy hope is but ignorance. Go then and labor in healing, go forth and fight, vanity. For a little space ye may triumph in the field for a day, but against the power that now arises there is no victory. To this city only the first finger of its hand has yet been stretched. All the east is moving, and even now the wind of thy hope cheats thee, and wafts up the Anduin a fleet with black sails. The west has failed. It is time for all to depart who would not be slaves. Such counsels will make the enemy's victory certain indeed, said Gandalf. Hope on, then, laughed Denethor. Do I not know thee, Mithrandir? Thy hope is to rule in my stead, to stand behind every throne, north, south, or west. I have read thy mind and its policies. Do I not know that you commanded this halfling here to keep silence? That you brought him hither to be a spy within my very chamber? And yet in our speech together I have learned the names and purposes of all thy companions. So with the left hand you would use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right bring up this ranger of the north to supplant me. But I say to thee, Gandalf Mithrandir, I will not be your tool. I, steward of the house of Anerion, will not step down to be the dotard chamberlain of an upstart. Even were his claim proved to me, still he comes out of line, comes but of the line of Isildur. I will not bow to such a one, lass of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship and dignity. What then would you have, said Gandalf, if your will could have its way? I would have things as they were in all the days of my life, answered Denethor, and in the days of my long followers before me, to be the lord of the city in peace and leave my chair to a son after me, who would be his own master and no wizard's pupil. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have naught, neither life diminished, nor love halved, nor honor abated. To me, it would not seem that a steward who faithfully surrenders his charge is diminished in love or in honor, said Gandalf, and at the least you shall not rob your son of his choice while his death is still in doubt. At those words, Denthor's eyes flamed again. Taking the stone under his arm, he drew a knife and showed towards the buyer. But Baragon sprang forward and saw himself before Faramir. So, cried Denethor, thou hadst already stolen half of my son's love, and now thou stealest the hearts of my knights also, so that they rob me wholly of my son at the last. But in this, at least, thou shalt not defy my will, to rule my own end. Come hither, he cried to his servants, come if you are not all recreant. Then two of them ran up the steps to him. Swiftly he snatched a torch from the hand of one and sprang back into the house. Before Gandalf could hinder him, he thrust the brand amid the fuel, and at once it cracked and roared into flame. Then Denethor leaped upon the table, and standing there, wreathed in fire and smoke, he took up the staff of his stewardship that lay at his feet and broke it on his knee. Casting the pieces into the blaze, he bowed and laid himself on the table, clasping the palantir with both hands upon his breast, and it was said that ever after, if any man looked in on that stone, unless he had a great strength of will to turn it to other purpose, he saw only two aged hands withered in flame. And Gandalf in grief and horror turned his face away and closed the door, and for a while he stood in thought, silent upon the threshold, while those outside heard the greedy roaring of the fire within. Then Denethor gave a great cry, and afterwards spoke no more, nor is ever again seen by mortal men. And so passes Denethor, son of Ecdelion, said Gandalf. So that was completely different from the, the film, you know, and that, that, the reason why I think it should have included at least a piece of that, you know, if you want to have him rush off the cliff and fire, fine, but you need to add the Palantir because it, 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 acts, it adds a, a, an aspect of it that is not seen in the film of him wrestling with Sauron's mind and, and how, you know, he was slowly driven to madness. You know, he was looking at that Palantir and trying to have a, like a, a mind battle with Sauron. So, of course, he's going to slowly, like, you know, fade into madness as it goes. 
And so like I, you have to add that at the very least. So that's that's something I was a little bit disappointed in. And uh, so this I this is one part though that it's not contextually accurate, but I think the movie did a little bit better here. Is the, I love the part where Eomer launches a spear like at the bad guy steering the Oliphant, and he fell off steering it into the other Oliphant, making them both collapse. I thought that looked sick on screen. That looked really cool because like it was almost like an earring. And when the guy fell off, they pulled the Oliphant's ear to the side and steered him directly into the other one, and they both fell and collapsed, and that looked badass. But anyways, to go to what Chase was saying, and I'm now at that part with the speech with Gandalf, and, you know, I know Chase already had mentioned it, but I'm going to say the speech again just to kind of refresh it. Uh, it gave us something to think about, and it was also, the speech about death was very beautiful. So Pippin said, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf says, end? No. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back, and all turns to silver glass. And then, you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores, and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't. And that is almost a direct quote from the very end of Return of the King, where Frodo has his, you know, ship set sail to the Undying Lands with the elves. That is almost, word for word, is very, very close. Interesting how they put it here, but I don't hate it because it really leads us to this debate of, you know, when Frodo left the Middle Earth, was he dead? Did, they, did like, he die and pass on? Or, you know, was that actually Undying Lands where they go and, you know, it's actually a part of the physical realm, you know? So I thought that was really, really cool. And it, it, it's, uh, you know, I'm going to try to find it as well to here in the book just so that way, you know, we can really talk about this. Uh, it, this is the second to last paragraph on page 339. It said, Then Frodo kissed Merry and Pippin and last of all Sam and went aboard. And the sails were drawn up and the wind blew and slowly the ship slipped away down the long gray firth and the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed on into the west until, at last, on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores, and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise." That was almost word for word. And so, yeah, then we were talking about this. Like, hey, is this possible that it could be a, 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 a an illustration of, you know, heaven, like in the spiritual realm? You know, he passed on into, you know, the, the, the paradise, so to speak. And so, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I It's hard for me to tell, but this definitely leads me to believe that, you know, the way the film had, had interpreted it was that, you know, that is what death is so i thought that was kind of cool what, what did you think about it yeah i mean it i think it's still up for interpretation because i mean keep in mind as we've <laughs> notated on these episodes the film doesn't exactly has done everything right <laughs> compared to the books but it brings up an interesting question maybe like was this actually happening when he boarded the boat with Gandalf and all this stuff or was maybe he just like laying in a bed somewhere with that wound and that kind of like started happening and he passed on that way like what's kind of your thoughts on that 
No, I don't. I don't really take that into consideration. I think that because Merry and Pippin took the journey with Frodo. Mm-hmm. Well, not with them. Like they they met them at at the docks and everything. And it, the whole book series ends with Sam coming back from that and from Sam's perspective. And he ends up coming back in the door and he says, well, I'm back. And so to me, it was pretty clear that at least that part had happened of them, you know, wishing Frodo farewell upon the ship. Mm-hmm. I think the real, the real crux of the issue is when Frodo boarded that ship and left, you know, when they passed through that, that quote unquote rain curtain at that point, was that, you know, uh, was that supposed to be and passing on into, you know, the spiritual realm, like leaving the physical world behind or... Was this actually a spot where, you know, because even what is confusing to me, not confusing, but what really begs the question is Frodo told Sam at some point he could go there as well because he was a ring bearer for a short period of time because Bilbo was with him and, you know, Bilbo had the ring for a good period of time. Frodo was a ring bearer. He's like, all ring bearers, you know, have a place there. And so I don't know what he was saying that you cannot always, because he told Sam you can't always be split between two, like wanting to serve Frodo and wanting to be like, a husband and a father and you know that side of life so it's like it's he gave sam almost an option and if it was death it's like you're just gonna like let your best friend that has, <laughs> has uh, his whole family here like you know you're gonna give him the option to you know uh stay or go i don't think he would do that you know but who knows man I, it, it's it's tough and we'll never get like a full clear answer it's just it, that's what i love about this sort of critical thinking portions of this is that you know, I, I could be given a few different perspectives and see how each one of them could be valid or, you know, viable. That's what, you know, that's what I think anyways. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an interesting thought, man. I mean, um, me personally, the way I'm going to look at it is it's just kind of like maybe the veil, like maybe the undying lands were the undying lands, but maybe the undying lands is, is like heaven or something when they get there. So, I mean, who knows? I mean... Only Mithrin Deer knows. He's the only one that actually died and came back. So, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, with that, I'll turn it back over to you, brother. Awesome. So, uh, this I thought this part was pretty accurate and pretty close, and it was a monumental piece. So, I, I want to give the film its credit where Aeon killed the Witch King. So, almost word for word and scene by scene, it was pretty close to spot on. Uh, you know, with, with Mary stabbing it in the back of the leg and then her you know, revealing her helm there and says, I am no man, and shoves the sword through the mouth of it. That was awesome. But what followed it was not accurate at all. <laughs> so it's like they really did a great job there and in the big moment of killing the Witch King. But it, <laughs> like immediately afterwards, they fucked everything up in that, like when it comes to Eowyn specifically. So this was an interesting addition. So uh, after she had killed the Witch King, you know, there was the deformed orc that was coming after her when she was kind of injured from the part of, of killing the Witch King. And then this is where Aragorn came off and saved Eowyn from the deformed orc. And it's factually inaccurate, though, because Eowyn was supposed to be rendered unconscious after killing the Witch King. Like, after she stabbed him and killed him, she was supposed to fall unconscious on the, the Pelennor Fields. So I thought that was interesting there. But... Yeah, anyways, I thought that was a cool addition when they added Aragorn. And even talking about that as well, I know that the the book, it was a little bit different. I just thought the way the movie portrayed it was also kind of cool. And this is one where I could I like both parts of when Aragorn jumps off the ship. So, yeah, in the in the novel, I'll go ahead and I can I can read that part, but the biggest difference between where the they come off the ship is that 
the Army of the Dead wasn't with them on the Pelennor Fields battle. Like, they, the Army of the Dead never went with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli to Gondor. All the Army of the Dead did was kill everyone on the Umbar ship Corsairs, the, the, the Corsairs of Umbar ships before they boarded them on the way to Gondor, if we want to go by what the book was doing. So the, the Army of the Dead never showed up to Gondor, ever. You know, that, that's, a, that's a huge difference. But I guess they wanted it to, you know, kind of sway the battle. And this is maybe them making up for the fact that they didn't add the other allies coming in to help Gondor. Remember, we went through the whole list of ones that were supposed to show up last week and they just never showed them in the film. Maybe this was their way of, you know, adding a quote unquote ally to help them survive the first wave against Mordor. But just factually inaccurate. You know, the Army of the Dead never, ever showed up to Gondor. And this, the other part too, you know, when he jumped off, it was with the Dunedain and they had the, the flag or whatever you call it, the standard of the uh, Elendil. I thought that was really cool. And it had like the whole thing and like basically it announced the return of the king when they got off of those ships in the book. Where in the movie, it was still cool because it was like the, the enemy was like, ah, oh, late as usual. We, there's a lot of work to be done. And all of a sudden it's just Aragorn and Legolas going to jump off this ship. And the, the army that did just swarms out of it. Like, it was really cool to see. It just was, you know, factually misrepresented. But I definitely thought that it was, it was interesting. And I do actually have the page on the, the in, in the book where this happened. It's uh, page 124 through 125. Just to kind of give a perspective on exactly what happened here. But, um, yeah. This is, it was just really interesting how it all came together but it is what it is it says uh east road so and then wonder took him and a great joy and he cast his sword up in the sunlight and it sang as he caught it and all eyes followed his gaze and behold upon the foremost ship a great standard broke and the wind displayed it as she turned towards the harlan there flowered a white tree and that was for gondor but seven stars were about it and a high crown above the sign of elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count and the stars flamed in the sunlight, for they were wrought of gems by Arwen, daughter of Elrond. And the crown was bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. Thus came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Isildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor. And the mirth of the Rohirrim was a torrent of laughter and flashing of swords. And the joy and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and ringing of bells. But the hosts of Mordor were seized with bewilderment. And a great wizardry it seemed to them that their own ships should be filled with their foes. And a black dread fell on them, knowing that the tides of fate had turned against them, and their doom was at hand. So east rode the knights of Dol Amroth, driving the enemy before them. Troll, men, Variagos, and the orcs that hated the sunlight. South strode Aylmer, and the men fled before his face, and they were caught between the hammer and the anvil. For now men leapt from the ships to the quays of the Harlan and swept the north like a storm. There came Legolas and Gimli, wheeling his axe, and Halbarad with the standard, and Eladon and Elrohir with the stars on their brow, and Dowerhand and Dunedain, rangers of the north, leading a great valor of the folk of Lebanon and Lamadon, and the fiefs of the south. But before all went Aragorn with the flame of the west, and Duro like a new fire rekindled, Narsil reforged as a deadly as of old upon the brow was a star of Elendil. And so at length Aelmer and Aragorn met in the midst of the battle, and they leaned on the swords and looked upon one another and were glad." So that's how they entered in the book. Nothing about the dead came to Gondor at all. It was still cool. Both ways they did it. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it because I liked how it looked. But in terms of 
you know, factually, it just it was really heavily misrepresented. But I think this was the film's way of making up for the fact that they didn't add any of the allies that were supposed to come help Gondor. So that's what I think about it. I'll turn it over to you. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I thought it was cool the way it looked. I didn't have a problem with it because from a visual perspective, it basically they had no chance <laughs> from like a visual perspective. Like, honestly from a visual perspective it appeared without that army of the dead like they'd still be effed like no matter how many Rohirrim were there that city was overtaken dude like that city was done those trolls pulled a Daenerys Targaryen and were slaying down citizens in the city like it was over they were throwing people like they were throwing people like rocks to trees like skipping rocks on lakes it was bad man so i i didn't mind it. it i thought it was a cool ad like i don't have a problem with it but yeah it was just another difference in there but um i'm willing to look past that cool and then just one more thing from that balance scene i'll turn it over to you to tackle your next part of the differences is just i thought the, this addition was really awesome it it put legolas in a really cool light where he like swung up on the oliphant and then you know climbed up to its back like and while he did it he cut like the rope and and the whole like, house thing that is on top of the oliphant's back starts sliding on one side and ended up like like uh he used the weight of it to end up carrying himself up to the top then he had three arrows in the bow and just launched it right down into the base of the oliphant's neck and that thing fell down, and he slid down the trunk like a surfboard. Like, oh my goodness, surfboard, <laughs> surfboard, <laughs> raining <Sorry>. on it. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty sick, but that was a really badass scene. And with that, man, I'll let you take the next couple of differences on your end. Yeah, no, it was great. You missed one little part there. When he comes down, Gimli goes, that still only counts as one. That's <laughs> great. It was fantastic. Um, going back a little bit to the Nazgul and Eowyn here, um, I mean, it, it was cool because it was really like word for word. The one thing I that was interesting, though, correct me if I'm wrong, in the book, doesn't she cut off his head? She cuts off the Nazgul's, like the... the dragon looking thing she cuts off that okay head. and she did yeah, and she like did in that the in the in the film too so yeah that was right but she stabbed it right in the center of the face in both so like that yeah that scene was very very accurate okay gotcha yeah, yeah. i just wasn't sure because i thought it was kind of cool like the way um you know when she stabbed it like the spirit almost came out of the witch king and he was like screeching and stuff so i thought that was that was really cool but yeah it was it was great um just to read that quote, not that you need it, but I thought this is an iconic quote where it's in the book. I am no man. Stabs him through the mouth. Just like you said, it was it was awesome. Um, and then you nailed it with all the, you know, where Aragorn kind of saves the day there and with the deformed orc and everything. In the extended version, in the theatrical version, you can't see this, but in the extended version, Aragorn and Aomer see where it looks almost as if Eowyn's about to die and Aomer's screaming and crying and Aragorn you can see like the tears run down his face whereas you can't really see that in the theatrical version but then you see just like the book Eowyn recovers <laughs> of course um here we are uh back with uh Shagrat who is the lead orc that was a very interesting conversation remember he goes up to Frodo and he's like 
I'm gonna bleed you like a stuck pig. And I thought it was badass, like Sam comes in and saves the day and stabs Shagrat in the back with Sting. And he goes, not if I stick you first. Like, I wonder who thought of that line. Like, I wonder who was thinking of the script is like, ooh, I got a good one. Stick and stick. <laughs> it's going to happen. And they wrote that in the show. I didn't mind. I thought it was kind of cool. Um, also, it was a cool ad where, remember, just like the books where Frodo and Sam put on the orc gear. But I guess, you know, they were kind of getting caught up in the orcs here and they wanted to blend in so you know the orcs are like whipping other orcs and like get moving you blazing cockroaches that sounded more like pirates of the caribbean whatever they said <laughs> anyways frodo and sam start that like fight like where frodo says punch me sam yeah and it like kind of distracts them to think they were like part of the orcs and they start whipping them to get back in the line very interesting uh but i thought it was cool after the orcs called like inspection and everything um and then here's that iconic this was very similar to the book i guess not really <laughs> in a way because sam always talked about the journey home and here in this section here sam and frodo are climbing up the mountain and frodo <laughs> drinks the water and he goes there will be none left for the return journey and sam i don't know where this came from he goes I don't think there will be a return journey, Mr. Frodo. Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Sam ever said something like that? I don't know where that came from. Um, and then in a minute, I'll turn it back over to you. But the mouth of Sauron, I thought, did look badass. That was really cool. Um, and, you know, he gave his speech. And the big difference here is, you know, remember Gandalf in the book was kind of we talked about he maybe he like saw through that bluff when he threw uh the mithril uh mithril shirt whatever you called it at gandalf but aragorn cuts off the head of sauron uh sauron's mouth <laughs> cuts off the head of the mouth of sauron which is badass and gimli goes i guess that concludes negotiations and aragorn says i do not believe it i will not and you have this badass speech that Aragorn runs back to the Rohirrim and the men of Gondor and says, Stand your ground, citizens of Gondor, of my Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same, same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. And that was badass. I thought it was awesome. It took me back to eighth grade. It was sick, man. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Awesome. I got a few things I, I got covered to catch up to you because there was a few more differences that I had mentioned. But... Uh, this is talking about from now we're back on the part where the battle of the Pelennor Fields is like in the film Theoden as he's dying doesn't actually get to see Eowyn one last time in the book she's supposed to be unconscious like we mentioned and to go ahead and prove that I'm going to go ahead and, and open up my book again to page 117 which is where it is on mine might be a little bit different in other people's but uh, anyways 
this is right I'm trying to figure out where we are on this page 117 last paragraph okay it says then one of the knights took the king's banner from the hand of Gulof, the banner bearer who lay dead, and lifted it up. Slowly, Theoden opened his eyes. Seeing the banner, he made a sign that it should be given to Eomer. Hail, king of the mark, ride now to victory. Bid Eowyn farewell. And so he died, and knew not that Eowyn lay near him. And those who stood by wept, crying, Theoden king, Theoden king. So, just says right there, a direct contradiction. It literally said that he died and did not know Eowyn was near him at all. So that was like... You know, it was a very emotional, cool little scene that they got a goodbye, but they actually did not get a goodbye as far as the book goes. So, just want to make sure everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, the, I also think this part was kind of cool, the extended edition. It tries, I honestly like the way that the movie did this a little bit better than the way the book kind of just threw it in randomly towards the end. But it kind of gives us a foreshadow of Faramir and Eowyn starting to have that budding romance. You know, like they see each other after they've both been tended to. Like that, like what was really supposed to happen there? We didn't really get to see it. We only got to see Aragorn heal Eowyn, kind of. It was like the way it was said in the book was way more intense because all three of them were unconscious. I'm talking about Faramir, Eowyn, and Merry, and like Aragorn goes to them one at a time to bring them back from you know quote unquote the abyss, right? So it was just interesting. He only really healed Eowyn on screen, and then like Faramir was just there at the window looking across, and Eowyn catches his eye. And so at least that started. You can get to see like their budding romance started there. Where in the book they just kind of threw it in towards the end. Like it was very interesting, but I you know it was a little bit different, but nothing too drastic. I like I said, I almost like the way they at least built it up a little bit more in the film versus. Just launching it in like, hey, this is this makes sense out of nowhere. But uh, now, and I've got a few things before I catch up to where you are with the Mouth of Sauron and before the big battle starts. But uh, the movie finally catches up to the return of the king at this point from Frodo and Sam's perspective. Because they have taken Frodo, he's like, in that tower with the orcs, and that is kind of how the, the two towers ended. So we can finally put the two towers book to rest here, and I can focus solely on the return <laughs> of the king, which is nice, right? But the, so now we're finally all caught up. We're all in everyone's perspective is now fully in the Return of the King, which is great. But the part where Sam saves Frodo has its minor differences. It's nothing too crazy. I don't need to really kind of go into detail because it doesn't change the, the plot too much. But um, I think the biggest change is that it dramatizes how hard it was to give the ring back to Frodo. Like, like Sam pretty much just kind of gave it back. Frodo snapped at him. He's like, "Shoot, why are you yelling at me, man? I just saved your ass." But, but like you know, the, the movie dramatizes it how this, the ring was starting to ensnare Sam, and he's like looking at it, and it's like drawn in, and he doesn't really want to give it back to Frodo. So that was just like the biggest difference, so to speak. It didn't really matter too much. Whatever, they gotta make it a little, little dramatic for for film's sake. But, anyways, now to go into the last council before they ride out to the Black Gates. The council they are holding in the movie is supposed to be intense outside of the city. And Legolas and Gimli were never supposed to be a part of that last uh, council meeting. In the book, it was supposed to include Elrond's sons, Elrohir, Eladon, Aragorn, Gandalf, Eomer, and Imrahil. Legolas and Gimli were not there. They were catching up with Merry and Pippin, and that's where they learned about what went on during the Paths of the Dead. You know, then Legolas kind of gave him the whole thing there. So this whole council meeting was just fully bullshit, <laughs> like that they put in, in the in the film. But and like also, what I didn't like either is the characterization of Gandalf at this part. They make him so negative. 
He's like, it's only a matter of time before Sauron gets the ring. Like, what the fuck? When was he ever like that in the book? Like, he was the one holding everyone else's hope together in the book. Like, they they try to give like Gandalf, you know, they try to give uh, that to Aragorn and make him be the guy there. So I, it is what it is. But it was just like I said, it's just frustrating. You know, if people don't read the book, they think that that's kind of what happened, and Aragorn kind of say the whole day, which he definitely plays a big role, but. You know, Gandalf is the one that makes the plans and sets the, the whole scene here. Aragorn doesn't come up with this plan they're about to do. Aragorn, <laughs> like, even the book that says that, you know, Gandalf says, like, I don't counsel prudence. This is what we should do. And they all agree. But in in the movie, it's all Aragorn making this whole thing up. But anyways, uh, I, I thought that was really ridiculous. But my favorite quote in this entire film series, specifically the film series, you know, not so much to do with the, the book here, but... I thought it was really cool. This is, like a second, it's not, it's not an accurate account of the book at all, but just from the film side of things, this was my favorite dialogue interaction between a few characters. Aomer, and this is in the council part, Aomer says, we cannot achieve victory through strength of arms. And Aragorn replies, not for ourselves, but we can give Frodo his chance if we keep Sauron's eye fixed upon us, keep him blind to all else that moves. And Legolas says, a diversion. To which Gimli responds, certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? <laughs> I thought that was badass. <laughs> like, I don't oh, know. Like, like, they were just willingly to walk into their own death. I thought it was cool. That was my favorite <laughs> little quote of the whole thing. It, made it, like, it was laughable, but also like kind of beautiful. Um, and then, I, and I guess this is, like I said, that this is where the movie makes up, and we talked about this last week when we talked about Aragorn was supposed to have used the Palantir to wrestle with Sauron's mind. I think this is where the movie tried to make up for that lack of thing that's supposed to happen back there <laughs> with Rohan, but even so, it still gets it all wrong. Uh, like, Aragorn uses the Palantir out of, like, it's not in the proper sequence of events, but uh, I guess we're going to let it slide, but he uses the Palantir here in Gondor, but apparently he was, like, it even mentions that he mastered it. Like, he bested Sauron and bent the stone to his will, where in the movie, it shows, like, he started off strong and then Sauron shows Arwen dying and, like, like, like laying in a dying state. <laughs> like, and then the glass sh falls and shatters from his neck. What the hell was this, man? And it almost looked like, you know, Sauron won that encounter in the film. <laughs> like, he, I like, agree. he beat Aragorn in the Palantir, which is just false. It just did not happen. So I thought that was ridiculous. It was tricksy and it was false is what it was. It was very false at the very least. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then this is another part before we get to the Black Gate here, too. The part where Frodo and Sam were grabbed by the orcs and thrown into the army marching to the gate was kind of similar with a few minor differences that I don't need to talk about. But, like, the biggest thing is uh, Frodo never asked Sam to create a diversion by fake fighting him. I also didn't love, but I get it just based on time, how the film left out the first two, like the first time they were almost discovered. There was a two orcs that were really close to them and they almost found them, but they ended up arguing and fighting each other and one killed the other one, if you guys remember that. And that's what they, they ended up going there. Because the reason why that was important is when they were arguing, the two orcs, we, we overhear them talking about Smeagol. So we know Smeagol is still around. And that's a good like foreshadow about what's to happen at the steps of Mount Doom, right? So I thought that it was definitely important that they could have added that, but they didn't, whatever. And then the Captains of the West basically get to the Black Gate in minutes, which is ridiculous because in the book they had to travel quite a ways. And Aragorn, you guys remember this, I mentioned this 
specifically from the book, and I'll go ahead and reference it again. But he sent some of the younger, more inexperienced men on a mission to retake care Andros, so that they that way they weren't terrified and walking to their own deaths. You know, and that's on page 169. Just for for reference on here, I just thought you know it would they they just ended up appearing at the black gates in the film. Like no, it was a whole little thing. So. I will read these two paragraphs. It says, Aragorn looked at them, and there was pity in his eyes rather than wrath. For these were young men from Rohan, from Westfold, far away, or husbandmen from Lossernak. And to them Mordor had been from childhood a name of evil and yet unreal, a legend that had no part in their simple life. And now they walked like men in a hideous dream made true, and they understood not this war nor why fate should lead them to such a pass. Go, said Aragorn, but keep what honor you may, and do not run. And there is a task which you may attempt, and so be not wholly shamed. Take your way southwest till you come to Carandros. And if that is still held by the enemies, as I think, then retake it, if you can, and hold it to the last in defense of Gondor and Rohan. Then some, being shamed by his mercy, overcame their fear and went on, and the others took new hope, hearing of a manful deed within their measure that they could turn to, and they departed. So there's that, that right there. It talks about how there is, they split off. Some people split off from the main force to go do that other task, and you know they, they talked about walking past the Morgul Vale and how they went and picked up the fallen heads king and put it back on and cleaned it of all the deformations that the orcs left on that the statue. And so I don't know. It just kind of felt a little bit rushed when the film did this, and they just kind of appeared at the Black Gate. But anyways, uh, from there, I thought this was important to notate. Mary was not at the battle at the Black Gate in the books. He was still healing from his encounter with the Witch King. So, and just so that way you guys can say, oh, I, don't, I didn't see Mary there. I made sure I notated the time on the extended film that you could see Mary right at the, uh, at the start of the Black Gate battle. It's uh, at 1 hour, 9 minutes, and 31 seconds. You can see Mary at the front gate there. Um, I just, he's not there <laughs> in the books. He was, he was healing up. So. But Pippin was there, but Mary was not. Uh, this was a difference, but it was cool to see that it's Chase mentioned. And, you know, I'm about to catch up to exactly where we're at, and I'll turn it back over to Chase here. But it was cool to see Aragorn cut off the mouth of Sauron's head in the parlay before the Black Gate. That never happened. They let him go back in for with a peaceful passage. But he got pissed off because he showed him Frodo's, you know, Mithrandir coat and shit. And so he got pissed and just went up and cut his head off. It was cool. But, uh, yeah, it just, that's not an accurate representation. Then... This little quote here was really beautiful between Gimli and Legolas. Gimli said, I'd never thought I'd die standing side by side with an elf. And Legolas says, what about with a friend? Gimli responds, aye, I could do that. And so now we're all caught up here. I'll go and turn it over to Chase for the next few differences that he's got. Once again, my man Legolas being the better man, trying to make friends when Gimli was being a big ass. <laughs> was this ass face week for Gimli? But he decided to come around after Legolas was the bigger man of the two. Once again, you know, Legolas really shows here that he is um, really what this entire series is about. I mean, they're really <laughs> just fucking with you guys. <laughs> I mean, once again, you know, after all these months, we really learned that 
If it wasn't for Legolas, like, I don't even know why the fuck this was written. Just <laughs> fucking with you guys. Okay, well, here we are. Back to reality, in the words of Eminem. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes Gravit. <laughs> oh, there goes Rabbit. Okay, let's do it, man. Okay, back to where we're at here. So, I don't have many differences left, so I'm just going to take this to the end. But I thought this was an interesting monologue from Samwise because I was wondering. Uh, it kind of reminded me of, like, remember when in the book he was like, you know, I can't carry it for you, Frodo, but I can carry you. Well, I was thinking maybe he would say, come on, Mr. Frodo, let's go get those strawberries. <laughs> he gives this monologue speech. I don't know. I thought it was kind of weird, but I was all right with it. He goes, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Frodo, no, Sam. I can't recall. I can't recall the fucking taste of strawberries, Sam. I'm just kidding. No, he goes, no, Sam. I can't recall the taste of food. Not the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing in the veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck this was. Then let us be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mister Frodo. I can't carry it for you. But I can carry you. Come on, let's let's go get those strawberries. <laughs> Just kidding. The let's go get those strawberries wasn't there, but I'm sorry. It was much better in the book. I have to disagree. I thought this was dumb. I should have just got this out. It was weird. There were so many cool monologues. It was strange to me. I, I don't know. What do you think about the strawberry monologue there? Like, I don't know. Like I, I found the the corresponding part in the novel where it's Please read kind it. of it yeah. was so much better. So and this is one of my favorite parts, and they ruined it. So yeah, well, to be honest, it had nothing to do with strawberries at all. It was about rabbit, to be honest. And this is in my book, page two twenty nine. It says, mm-hmm. "Do you remember that bit of rabbit, Mister Frodo?" He said, "And our place under the warm bank in Captain Faramir's country the day I saw an olifant." No, I'm afraid not, Sam said. Frodo, at least I know that such things happen. But I cannot see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. So that's what it's supposed to be like in the book. And like it's kind of similar-ish, but I don't know what the <laughs> whole weird. strawberries deal was. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was strange, but whatever. I'll 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 let it slide. Um, but then you had this kind of interesting part. You have Sauron like trying to kind of corrupt Aragorn in a way with like his final efforts here. And he's like Aragorn, Elisar, and then like you know he like Aragorn looks at Gandalf, and then this was cool though. Like, this is on all the memes. Like, you know, you're just ready to run into battle with your boys. Like, this is it. Like, we're all fucked, but let's do it. Like, one more round of Fortnite, right? When the girl told you to go to bed and you're getting in trouble anyways. For Frodo. 
And then he just runs out there with his big-ass broadsword. Hell yeah, Aragorn is the shit. He's the only one besides Gandalf that can stand next to Legolas, in my opinion. Gimli's nowhere near any of those three. It was fantastic. Anyways, back to Samwise. Last story time for the entire Lord of the Rings series, guys. I hope you're ready. Hope you're ready. Look, Mr. Frodo, a doorway. We're almost there. Clever hobbits is to climb so high. Gollum chokes Frodo. Mustn't go that way. Mustn't hurt the precious. You swore. You swore on the precious. Smeagol, you promised. Smeagol lied. <laughs> and then he continues to choke Frodo and Sam throws a rock at his head and Sam attacks Gollum while the battle continues. Gollum bites Sam and Sam slashes him with the sword. And this is badass because Gandalf then sees the butterfly as the orcs are being slayed, as the ring wraiths are approaching from above. And then the eagles collide with the wraith, wraiths and then you go back to Sam and Frodo... And Frodo goes, I'm here, Sam. Destroy it! Go on! Throw it in the fire! What are you waiting for? Just let it go! And then Frodo goes, The ring is mine. And puts it on, and Sam just goes, No! And Gollum hits Sam in the back of the head with a rock, climbs on Frodo, bites his finger off. You get to see Aragorn fight this badass troll, and it looks like it's all over for Aragorn because that troll's just stomping on his ass. You're fucked, Aragorn. You're fucked. I'm stomping on you. Good now. And then Gollum's face is the best. It's priceless when he gets that ring like a little kid at Disney World as he's falling in the fire. It's for me. And Aragorn stabs that troll in the foot as he's getting smashed. And then Gollum goes off the ledge with the ring as Frodo's attacking him and falls just fixated and burns alive. And Sam goes to rescue Frodo and goes, take my hand. Don't let go. Don't you let go because Frodo's on the edge of the cliff there. And the ring dissolves and the troll steps away from Aragorn in the tower and Sauron's eye collapses Everything's falling apart and it like earthquakes and all the orcs fall in there. Tears are filling Gandalf and Aragorn's eyes because we know the good guys have won. And Frodo says, I can see the Shire, the Brandywine, River Bag in, Gandalf's fireworks, lights at the party tree. Rosie Cotton, dancing, she had ribbons in her hair. If I were ever was to marry someone... It would have been her, Frodo says. I'm glad to be with you, Samwise, Gamgee. Here at the end of all things. It was visually stunning just watching Aragorn become king then after they get rescued by the birds. Aragorn kisses Arwen. Everyone claps. And then the hobbits, it zooms in on the hobbits because they're about to bow to Aragorn. And Aragorn goes, my friends, you bow to no one. And then everyone bows to the hobbits. And they entirely throw out the scoring of the Shire and Sauron. And it ends. It was, it was, it was just something. It was something there. And uh, back to you. And that's all my differences.
Yeah, there's a lot more that we're going to talk about. <laughs> so the good thing is I can kind of run through them. But uh, yeah, and, and by the way, you meant the Scouting of Shower and Saruman, not Sauron. Oh, uh, whatever his name was. Sauron, <laughs> Saruman, Legolas, Gimli, <laughs> Brandywine, Strawberries. Yeah, go for it. But uh, yeah, this is back to this part where they're at the base of Mount Doom, where it basically shows Frodo at the mercy of Gollum, like Gollum's besting him in that little struggle. Where for page 236 or 237 in the reference here, Frodo is actually able to fend him off because he tried to get that ring and like that ring, like the fact that someone tried to take that ring from him gave him like extra fire. And so to kind of give an, uh, an idea of what that looked like, let me go ahead and read that. So again, page 236 in, in my book, start here, says, again, he lifted and Frodo drew his hands down to his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Then he bowed his head and struggled off along the climbing road, but it was not easy a way to take as it looked at first. By fortune, the fires had poured forth in the great turmoils when Sam stood upon Kirith Ungol, had flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes, and the road on this side was not blocked, yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by gaping rents. After climbing eastward for some time, it bent back upon itself at a sharp angle and went westward for a space. There at the bend, it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone once long ago vomited from the mountain's furnaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned the bend, and even as he did so, the corner's eye, he had a glimpse of something fall, falling from the crag like a piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. Then a sudden weight smote him, and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that still clasped his master's, and he knew what had happened, for above him as he lay, he heard a hated voice. Wicked master, it hissed. Wicked master cheats us. Cheats Smeagol. Gollum, he mustn't go that way. He mustn't hurt Precious. Give it to Smeagol. Yes, give it to us. Give it to us. And with a violent heave, Sam rose up. At once he drew his sword, but he could do nothing, because Gollum and Frodo were locked together. Gollum was tearing at his master, trying to get at the chain in the ring. And this was probably the only thing that could have roused the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will. An attack, an attempt to wrest his treasure from him by force. He fought back with a sudden fury that amazed Sam, and Gollum also. Even so, things might have gone far otherwise if Gollum himself had remained unchanged. But whatever dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless, he had trodden, driven by a devouring desire and a terrible fear, they had left him grievous marks on him. He was lean, starved, and a haggard thing, all bones and tight-drawn sallow skin. A wild light flamed in his eyes, but his malice was no longer matched by his old griping strength. Frodo flung him off and rose up quivering. Down! Down, he gasped, clutching his hand to his breast, so that beneath the cover of his leather shirt, he clasped the ring. Down, you creeping thing, and out of my path. Your time is at an end. You cannot betray me or slay me now. Then suddenly, as before, under the eaves of the Emin Mule, Sam saw these two rivals with other vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than a shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with a hideous lust and rage. And before it stood stern, untouchable, now by pity, a figure robed in white. But at its breast it held a wheel of fire, and out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone, and trouble me no more. If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom. The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet at the same time in an insatiable desire. Then the vision passed, and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on the breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet resting on his knees, his wide splayed hands upon the ground. 
Look out, cried Sam. He'll spring. He stepped forward, brandishing a sword. Quick, master. Go on. Go on. No time to lose. I'll deal with him. Go on. And Frodo looked at him as if one far away. Yes, I must go on, he said. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell. He turned and went on, walking slowly but erect upon the climbing path. Now, said Sam, at last I can deal with you. He leaped forward with drawn blade, ready for battle, but Gollum did not spring. He fell flat on the ground and whimpered. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost. We're lost, and when the precious goes, we'll die. Yes, die into the dust. He clawed up ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. And Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved, and also seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. So, the reason why I went through that is it discussed, like, here, this Frodo actually bested Gollum in that, and even commanded him with the power of the ring. And the film doesn't show that. The film shows, like, like him almost dying. <laughs> like, almost, like, getting killed by, by Gollum before, like, Sam helps intervene and, you know, whatever. But, so that's, that's just something that was a difference that, you know, was done for no reason. I will say one thing that the movie did very well. I thought the battle at the Black Gate was fucking awesome to see on screen. And then, then, like Chase had mentioned, Gandalf calling the eagles to fight the Nazgul was so sick. <laughs> that was really, really cool. Yeah. And just crashing into each other. It was badass. Uh, now we get to the part in Mount Doom. The part of Frodo not letting the ring go and putting it on and the struggle with Smeagol was all pretty accurate until they have Frodo try and attack Smeagol and wrestle the ring back from him where they both topple over and Frodo hangs on the ledge until Sam gets him up. That never happened in the film at all. All that happened was uh, Smeagol bit Frodo's ring, finger off with the ring on it and then pulled the, the, you know, he didn't even pull the ring, the, fing, the broken finger out of the ring. He still had it in there and he ended up dancing and was so joyous that he had the ring back that he slipped and fell by himself backwards off of the cracks of doom. I know why they did it. They wanted to add that little extra piece of drama and flair that, oh shoot, maybe Frodo died too. But it just wasn't an accurate representation, whatever. I don't hate it. It doesn't change the plot at all. Smeagol still died with the ring at, at the end of the day, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> I did think after that was all done and like the Eagles picked him up, when they all were reunited for the first time since they, they you know, I would say all, they were all together outside of Bormir, obviously, because Bormir died. But they were all together for the first time since the Council of Elrond. Right, because I mean, I guess I could say you know the mines of Moria, because that's where the first Gandalf fell and you know went away from the rest of the crowd. But you know, in terms of where they were all together in a peaceful setting, that was the first time since the Council of Elrond where they were like that. So it was nice to see them all reunited, even though it happened a bit different in, in the book. Uh, this is what I was talking about when we were mentioning. I was, you know, I would say probably an hour or so ago when I was talking about the the tree in Gondor. The tree in Gondor never actually rebloomed in the book. And I'll go ahead and, and talk exactly where this happened here. And this is important because it's actually a fully different tree. <laughs> that, that just I thought this was pretty cool here in terms of what the novel did. I did not love what the film did. But, you know, here we are. So, whatever. So, I'm going to start here. It says, this is Gandalf and Aragorn speaking to each other. Gandalf starts. Says, Turn your face from the green world and look where all seems barren and cold. Then Aragorn turned. And there was a stony slope behind him, running down from the skirts of the snow. 
and as he looked, he was unaware that alone there in the waste, a growing thing stood, and he climbed to it and saw that out of the very edge of the snow there sprang a sapling tree no more than a foot than three foot high. Already it had put forth young leaves, long and shapely, dark above and silver beneath, and upon its slender crown it bore one small cluster of flowers whose white petals shone like the sunlit snow. Then Aragorn cried, Yea, Utavienes, I have found it. Lo, here is a scion of the eldest of trees, but how comes it here? For it is not yet itself seven years old. And Gandalf coming looked at it and said, Barely this is a sapling of the line of Nimloth the fair, and that was a seedling of Galathilion, and that a fruit of Telperion of many names, eldest of trees. Who shall say how it comes here in the appointed hour? But this is an ancient hallow, and before the kings failed or the tree withered in the court, a fruit must have been set here. For it is said, though the fruit of the tree comes seldom to ripeness, yet the life within may then lie sleeping through many long years, and none can foretell the time in which it will awake. Remember this, for if ever a fruit ripens, it should be planted, lest the line die out of the world. Here has lain hidden on the mountain, even as the race of Elendil lay hidden in the wastes of the north. Yet the line of Nimloth is far older than your line, King Elisar. Then Aragorn laid his hand gently to the sapling, and lo, it seemed to hold only lightly to the earth, and it was removed without hurt, and Aragorn bore it back to the citadel. And there the withered tree was uprooted, but with reverence, and they did not burn it, but laid it to rest in the silence of Rathdinan. And Aragorn planted the new tree in the court by the fountain, and swiftly and gladly it began to grow, and when the month of June entered, it was laden with blossom. The sign has been given, said Aragorn, and the day is not far off, and he set watchmen upon the walls. So, that tree in Gondor that we see on screen, it died. It was not coming back. It was withered, but they said they, they uprooted it and laid it to rest with reverence, and they planted the new sapling there. So, just a full-on difference that, you know, I guess... You can't cover everything, whatever. Not the biggest deal in the world. But definitely wanted to detail it. And then uh, this is something that just doesn't happen. I mean, we can assume it happens, and it's not the biggest deal. But in the book, Aragorn gives the charge of Athelion to Faramir. We don't actually see him do that in the film, whatever. And the whole of Gondor bowing to the hobbits was a beautiful ad in the film. But it happened a little differently in the book. And in the book, that's on page 249. It's the third paragraph. I'm just going to read like the little bit of difference that it, like why I thought it is important because it was talking about how Sam still acknowledges Aragorn as Strider because he didn't know that he became became uh, the king. So Frodo says, uh, and then they knew him, changed as he was, so high and glad of face, kingly lord of men, dark hair with eyes of gray. Frodo ran to meet him, and Sam followed close behind. Well, if this isn't the crown of all, he said, Strider, or I'm still asleep. Yes, Sam, Strider, said Aragorn. It is a long way, is it not, from Bree, where you did not like the look of me. A long way for us all, but yours has been the darkest road. And then to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, he bowed his knee before them, and taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, he led them to the throne, and setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so his voice rang over the host, crying, Praise them with great praise! And when the last shout had swelled up and died away, and again, to Sam's final and complete satisfaction of pure joy, a minstrel of Gondor stood forth and knelt and begged leave to sing. And behold, lo, lords and knights and men of valor unashamed, 
kings and princes, to the fair people of Gondor and riders of Rohan, and ye sons of Elrond, and the Dunedain of the north, and elf and dwarf, and the greatest hearts of the Shire, and all free folk of the west, now listen to my lay, for I will sing to you of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. So that was just a little different way that they were honored. Not a big difference, but definitely wanted to talk about it. And then from there... I, I, this is the rest of the film's a fucking mess. From from this part on, the rest of the film is a fucking mess. Like like uh, Chase did kind of mention it, it, it and summarize it and say they took basically the whole last part of everything out. But to exactly talk about what they took out, the in the film they never went back to Isengard. They never saw Treebeard again. They never had a final parting with everyone from the Fellowship. They never went to Rivendell for Bilbo's birthday before returning home. The Shire, when they got there in the film, was sitting there nice and pretty for them when they returned instead of under attack like it was in the book. So basically the last 30 minutes of the movie was just all fucked up. Like, like that was like <laughs> what happened. It was just ridiculous because, like, like we had mentioned, and we know that the film had Sauron die in part one with Wormtongue stabbing him off the top of Orthanc. But whatever. But just everything, they took out all, all of the stuff towards the end and just decided they're going to change the ending. <laughs> they just said, you know what? We're just going to go full rogue here. And <laughs> so there's just so many stuff they just left out. You know, like that's the I mean, whole... they did sail to the Undying Lands. Like, that was the same. But yeah, was... and even then, I still got two things that, you know, aren't even the same there. <laughs> like, even the, that was just kind of messed up. <laughs> but the whole point and why it's important is because this is where Merry and Pippin really come into their own in the books. This is what they were trained to do it's almost like going in the hyperbolic time chamber in dragon ball z and come out like at your fullest potential ready to roll like mary and pippin are now like the greatest knights of the shire and they take control of everything and, and take it back over and it just shows them like their time with both gondor and with rohan how they they are now the most prominent hobbits in the shire when it comes to like defending them and you know like standing up for for these little hobbits who you know just by nature don't really like they just kind of get rolled over because they don't care about too much they like to eat they like to drink and they like to sleep and that and they like to farm they like to eat they, they make their food and all that <laughs> like so like, like you know like they're, they're not they're not warriors not battles but battlers but in this book it shows them like like mary and pippin come back and rise a whole shire against the intruders and they all kick him out like that was their shining moment and the movie said nah fuck it <laughs> so i don't know man I, I thought that i had a problem with that for sure and then even like i said the goodbye was different it, in the book, it was only a surprise to Sam because Gandalf had sent word ahead for Merry and Pippin in the book to come and say goodbye so that way Sam didn't travel back alone. In the movie, Gandalf says it's time and all the hobbits are like, what? <laughs> what do you mean it's time? Time for what? Like I said, it was only a surprise to Sam in the book, but apparently it was a surprise to everybody in the film. And then I, did, I will say this. The very last closing scene was pretty much spot on scene for scene word for word where sam comes home and his family was there waiting for him and he said well i'm back like that part was done very very well but everything like i said everything leading up after the uh, the you know aragorn being crowned king was a fucking mess like for the last bit of that but that's all the differences that that i had for the film so did faramir ever kiss eowyn I don't think that ever happened either, did it? I know they, like, glimpsed at each other, and you had some spark go for, like, ten seconds in the extended version. I think but. they were, like, holding hands as uh, Aragorn was walking by and, like, nodding to everyone who was important along the stretch there. <laughs> so I don't know if they have actually kissed or not, but I believe they were holding hands, and you can kind of infer that they were betrothed or whatever. But I don't... I, you know, I'll be 100% honest, I don't rightly remember if they kissed or not. I don't believe so, but don't quote me on it. And so... Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, those those are the big differences I have between the film and the book. There was there was a lot of them again. Like this, 
you know, it was doing so well up through like, the two towers, like, you know, for the most part. And then the last two, like the movie, the last two parts, part one and part two, that just there's so many differences. And they just took a lot of liberties and left a lot of important shit out. But uh, yeah, man, what, what do you have for like your, your final takeaways and maybe a rating for what you would give the part two on a scale of one to ten? And, and you know, we'll kind of go from there. Smeagol, you swore. You swore on the precious. Smeagol lied. (laughs) (laughs) Smeagol lied. Smeagol lied. (laughs) That's great. Uh, You know what's funny, too, is... um, uh, I I mean, what's funny, too, is so many people that don't read the book, they always prank, like, Return of the King, the films, like, the best out of all of them, and... Now that I've read the books again after so many years, it's definitely given me another perspective. But since we're just solely focusing on this part two movie ranking today, uh, you know, visually, though, I'll I'll start with the positives first. (laughs) Visually, visually, there were some cool parts. I do like you actually got to see the battle in front of the Black Gate and how they were surrounded. Like, that was really cool. You really didn't get to see that part in the novel itself. Um, Interesting ads. I like the ad conversation that they had with Pippin and Gandalf there. I even didn't mind the whole staff break scene. I was like, sure, that was kind of kind of cool. <laughs> kinda like an interesting guy. But that's I'll leave that to the side. Um But there were some things, you know, that are just like I said, they're just unforgivable. Like the whole the last 30 minutes was bullshit <laughs> basically. Like I don't know what that was. I did like the quote there with Aragorn had some amazing quotes. Like, I like love the speech he had. I love that he cut off the head of the mouth of Sauron. I like that he even said, you bow to no one. Like, give the hobbits the respect they deserve. And I love the ads of Legolas and Gimli. But there are some things, like... Like, I just don't know that it was necessary. I think it was better than part one because, you know up until the whole part they really couldn't change because they already backed themselves into the corner with Saruman was dead already. It wasn't like to the point it was as bad as the first part. I'll give it a 7-9. 7-9. I think that's fair. That's hilarious because um, I'll, I'll kind of go in reverse and give my rating for before I give my final takeaways on it. Because I gave it the exact same. You guys can look over here. I got it written down seven nine. That's really funny. I think that's the first time. You know, because we don't we don't tell each other what we think about it. We kind of do it live here on set, and we can you know so that way we can kind of debate of why you know we gave it the number that we did. But the fact that you just said that just really funny because I gave it the exact same score seven point nine out of ten, and I'll detail a lot of the same reasons. I did think it was better than part one, mainly because of the battle scenes that we got to see on screen. It was cool to see, even though it wasn't you know contextually accurate you know the army of the dead swarming the city of gondor and saving them it was cool uh, you know that battle they said with uh, legolas watching him take down that oliphant by himself like amr throwing that spear and like the two oliphants crashing in and uh the battle before the black gate where aragorn just runs straight at it and you see like mary and pippin run with their little legs and the whole of the men like overtake them because they're so short and small and it, it, you know just smeagol biting off that finger uh, it, it visually had a lot of cool things, it, but you know, it didn't do a great job of the important key parts of, you know, 
the thing, the nuances that make the story what it is. There was a lot of differences here, you know, and like you mentioned, the last 30 minutes of that film, it was nonsense. Like there was a whole other conflict that they just decided we're we're done, we're tired, we filmed a lot. Like these extended <laughs> editions are four hours a movie. Let's just call it a day and wrap it up. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. I'm kind of left a bad taste in my mouth in that way. You know, for like, if this is like an action battle movie, this would be one of the top ones. You know, but the fact that it, it's Lord of the Rings: Return of the King and it's supposed to be based on uh, an events in the novel. There's some important things that we mentioned throughout this episode that you need to add. That you, or you can't cut off and you can't change completely. It's just it's really silly, you know. But it is what it is. You've got to make your differences and, and make the story your own you know, as you're creating a film. And I get that. It's just I don't love the ones that change the plot of what the novel is supposed to be that really bother me the most. You know, and I am really nitpicky. Uh, obviously, between the two of us, I'm the one that kind of gets really into the the details of almost not every single difference, but like I definitely detail a lot more. And I'll like I'll like go ahead and read it back from the book there, just because I just want everyone to see that it, it is a good movie in its own right. But like like Chase mentioned, a lot of people put Return of the King as the best movie of all the Lord of the Rings movies, when in reality, realistically, just based on accuracy. The Fellowship of the Ring is probably the best, most closely followed of the uh, of movies to the novel series. So, I don't know. It, it, like, it was cool. There was a lot of action, and it kind of brought a resolution and everything, so I can see why people really loved it. But when you match it up, you know, scene by scene with the novel, you'll see, like, how different it really is. And so, that's kind of why it kind of gave it, it, it its mark there. It, it hits just below an 80 for me, like, you know, 8.0 out of 10. It hits just below an 80. You know, what they say in uh, college... C's get degrees, so it still does its thing, man. But this was, uh, you know, I, I expected a little bit more. But I will say this, even, quote-unquote, the worst Lord of the Rings movie that matches up the least with the novel, which you could you could argue in terms of it could have been, you know, part one of Return of the King or part two because they both have a lot of differences in it, but we like part two better because a lot of the visuals and the battle scenes. So you can argue, but even even though that the lowest rating we gave, or for me personally, that I gave a Lord of the Rings extended edition film was a 7.1 out of 10, where like the worst Harry Potter film I got, I'm pretty sure I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I gave it like a four something. Like you know what I mean? So yeah, so even bad. so, that it, it is different, and there are things that I don't love about it. It still overall was a, a decent rendition of what the novel is about, as we compare it to like other adaptations of films and novels such as Harry Potter. So. You know, that, that's kind of like my final takeaway. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we close out for the day? No, I entirely agree on all counts. I mean, uh, <laughs> you're right. I mean, just like I, I told you, you know, what's funny is just piggybacking off of that for a second. My favorite Harry Potter book still to this day, just because how sentimental it is to me and i love the journey that it goes through and how the characters um it really dives in deep into their subjects and their growth as as students is harry potter and the order of the phoenix i'm sorry but no the film absolutely not like i'll leave it at that because i don't like just sitting here trashing things and I still think the cast did a good job, specifically, but the way that movie was written, it wasn't even the same book. Same thing with Goblet of Fire. That's your favorite book. That film, I'm sorry, you changed the entire plot line. Going back to Lord of the Rings here, 
I will the, these films even though yes there were some parts like Tyrion Lannister says are unforgivable still they stayed if you take them overall similarly consistent with the novels to where you're getting most of the main plot points there it wasn't entirely different where you're like this was a news story like no you're like okay i get it like i i see it might not have gone the direction you were trying to go but however i see you were still trying to create this journey very similarly uh the same so and no i truly enjoyed it and i think too if you if you didn't read i can absolutely see how if you didn't read the books you would absolutely love this trilogy i could see that because even you know just i would love just to go watch them in a theater and take them as their own thing like that's cool it's very action-packed and um it, it's it, i will say it's in my opinion still one of the best fantasy movie series uh that's been created and what we've been able to see um, which goes to show, like, the awards it's won. <laughs> so I think that speaks for itself. So that's all I'll say. I, and, and the ride's been great, but uh, don't worry. We're not leaving you entirely with Lord of the Rings yet. And I'll turn it back over to you to close this out. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, we, we had mentioned it before. We're going to do one more bonus episode. We're going to do, uh, in that bonus episode, some cool rankings. We'll, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but we'll rank some of the the best things that about the Lord of the Rings series, both novel and film-wise. And we'll go through, like I said, a few fun facts of the appendixes of what happens after the story of the Lord of the Rings and kind of where characters go based on what we see in those appendixes. Uh, but outside of that, you know, all good things must come to an end, right? And we had a really fun time with this journey, following our characters until we said goodbye to them today. It was always going to be that sense of like emptiness and loss when you, you put a series away after you read it again and you know you because you draw such an emotional connection you're following them along their big adventure you know like you know some people and don't make it you know what i mean in terms of characters you know they die along the way and so to kind of finally put everything at a close and at an end you know it's uh it, it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful time to really move on and uh kind of give our final thoughts on this whole thing next week but it, this has been a culmination of everything we've done for the past three plus months you know, and it's been great to provide it out here. And I feel like do it, you know, do it in a way that not only was efficient, but really kind of detailed all the important information that one would need to know when it comes to Lord of the Rings. You know, because when we talked about this from the very beginning, this is a book that was written in the 1940s. Like I think the Fellowship of the Ring started being written in the 40s and we're in 2022. So to be able to bring this and try to you know translate it and, and break it down in a way that makes sense to audiences of this day and age, it's just a special thing to do. And I'm really happy that we were able to, to tackle that. And you know, it, it is time to say goodbye to these characters, but uh, you know, it was, it was a really fun ride. You know, and so if this is your very first time listening to us, we hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Uh, if you're looking to figure out where you can follow us, we're on all forms of social media, so you can follow us on Instagram at official ridiculous patronus, on TikTok at ridiculous patronus. We have a Facebook fan page, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We're on Twitter at RP Factor Fantasy, Snapchat RP Factor Fantasy. We also have our own website, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. So you can find us there on all social sites. Go ahead and click like and subscribe. Follow along. We love the audience engagement, and this is one of the if you're a listener that's been with us since the very very beginning. 
Thank you so much for being the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. And again, in terms of the podcast specifically, you can find us, if you're an Apple user, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Google Play. We're on Amazon Music. We're on Audible. We're on Podbean, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, (laughs) Acast, YouTube, anywhere that you can get your podcast. Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy are there. But we're out for the day because this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.